This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. I am joined this week again by Miss Pardeep Katri. How's it going, Pardeep? I'm pretty good, Claire. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this game. So we're just going to kind of dive into it. We're going to talk about the NWSL Challenge Cup final that was played to a draw between the Portland Thorns and Gotham FC, a 1-1 draw that Portland did ultimately win on penalties. Um, we'll, we'll get into the details, but I want to just start with, Party. did you enjoy watching this game? Did you think this was a fun one? Eventually, yes. Yeah, fair. <laughs> the second half was probably more objectively fun than the first half, though. I mean, it's not like the first half didn't lack for entertainment. I think the first half went kind of the way we thought. Portland was just, oh my gosh, they were attacking all the time. And not like they kind of slowed down in the second half, but it got more even. And then I always find penalty kicks inherently entertaining, even though they're cruel. I don't know what that says about me, but... I found it entertaining. Yeah, I thought the narrative of this one was <clears throat> was really enjoyable just in that um, I think we all maybe had some prior feelings about how we thought maybe this was going to go. A team that we thought maybe had an advantage. I think that a lot of people were expecting Portland to take this one in regulation. Um, they score very early, right? Christine Sinclair scores in the eighth minute on a great shot. It was a long shot, um, just slips right past Didi Hirachich, who ultimately ended up having a great game. And you think to yourself, maybe, oh, no, what are we in for here? Um, But I'll say in terms of enjoyment of that first half, a couple of things, one being that I it felt like a final, you know, the Portland fans had drums. That was great. We're still getting used to hearing actual organic crowd noise on the streams again. And I thought hearing that was really nice. Gotham looked a little bit nervous maybe um in the context of it being a final and portland definitely tried to set the tone early and they were able to do that by and maybe this is a good place to start so the the goal that that christine sinclair scores is a series of mishaps from gotham's side carly lloyd has the ball she plays kind of a bad touch christine sinclair comes in to win the ball from her carly lloyd there you watch that you're like I think maybe you got a foul there immediately once you lose the ball and then Gotham's defense their center backs did not step to Sinclair and she had a lot of time and she took it and she got that goal and you think to yourself okay Gotham is not executing maybe at the level they need to be executing at to keep this one close what were your impressions of maybe that first 15 minutes of the match I think I think you summarized it pretty well. It Again, we come into this match knowing that Portland is going to be ridiculously hard to beat. And I think you could see that watching Gotham play. They just, it, 
it didn't feel like there was it was concise at all in when they were defending and like you said there were a lot of individual errors that led to that goal from Sinclair which was a great goal but it was it was a problem that persisted throughout the first half and my ultimate reaction is just that it is going to be very hard for a lot of teams to play this Portland team this year because it's not like Gotham didn't have the pieces to or the players to I mean to compete at any level in this league it just was a really hard task and you could see it for more than just that opening 15 minutes. Right. Let's actually talk about the pieces for Gotham here, because I, I had some questions about their 11, maybe um, that I, I don't think that you can point and say, you know, this was a bad choice or this was a bad choice, but Gotham is still sort of putting together this 18, this full 18 player roster and the pieces that they're choosing to start versus choosing to have come off of the bench, I think are interesting. Obviously um, a point of discussion in that first half was they have been starting Carly Lloyd, right. As their center forward, number nine. And that has left, you know, Evelyn Vienne on the bench. And it's not just that Vienne is like a talented player, but she's kind of your hot hand right now. She's been scoring for Canada. She was scoring for um, Paris FC. She was scoring a lot in the French league when she was on loan and sort of relegating her to a late game sub does limit the impact of that kind of a weapon. Um, we saw Ifioma Animanu spend a lot of time on the bench um, on, on Saturday and in the defense, they started Lewandowski and Freeman together, which I don't have anything specifically bad to say about either of those players. However, Gotham has had to sub center backs with some frequency during the challenge cup. And it does seem like Estelle Johnson calms things down when she comes in. So I wonder what are your impressions on some of those decisions? And do you think that Gotham is still tweaking to go into the regular season? Yeah, I spot on. That's basically what I've been thinking about too. To start on the center backs, I thought Freeman and Lewandowski, I mean, I don't think they're necessarily problematic players to have, but they probably had the worst performances of anybody during that game, especially during the first half. And it really was bizarre to me that Estelle Johnson didn't start that game. Right. Because like you said, she brings a calming presence and uh, that's the effect she has almost every time she has played for this team, not just this year, but I mean, I remember in 2019, it was a pretty similar concept too, because there was a difference in that defense, not uh, when she was there and when she wasn't, because she obviously spent some time away from the team during the world cup with Cameroon. So, I mean, maybe Freya Kuma is taking a bit of an experimental approach there, but I think at a certain point, Estelle Johnson should probably be the start, one of the starting center backs for this team, no question. And another point you made about Carly Lloyd, I feel like she is, is conundrum the right word? She's probably the, she's, she is a very unique player. Because it's very, it's like, how do you start her? But it's also like, how do you bench her? You know, it's exactly. like both at the same time. Yeah. Because she is both at the same time. She's both, a very useful player when she's on the field. She obviously scored Gotham's lone goal on Saturday. She has been pretty uh, reliable for them in the past too. And in 
2018, she's the reason they didn't have a winless season. In 2019, she scored a lot of goals despite missing a lot of uh, time with the national team. Right. But at the same time, sometimes she feels like she doesn't suit the tactical vision of the team. Right. I mean, she... Like her first, the first half she had on Saturday, it, it was, I mean, it was like not a good first half for her. She turned it around because that's what Carly Lloyd does sometimes. She just, right. it's like she sort of sat down with herself at halftime and was like, okay, now I'm going to be a good player. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, you saw it on. I think the, one of the other glaring examples is we talked about the giveaway that led to the Portland goal, but there was that one instance of of Midge Purse running with the ball up the right wing. She hits the ball hard to the penalty spot, and Carly Lloyd isn't there. Carly Lloyd is like waiting for a cutback, and JP Della Camera on the broadcast said it was a, a quote unquote bad pass. And I think it was more like, I don't know if that's a bad pass, but these do seem like players who are not on the same page. Yeah. And when you look at the other pieces that Gotham has, they are quick transition. You know, the, the people talk a lot about their possession and like, sure, they, they try to pass out of the back. They're working on that, but they're a quick transition team. That's how they score a lot of their goals. And so is Carly Lloyd the right player for that kind of quick transition, especially if it just doesn't seem like she is seeing the same lanes as her teammates. Um, Gotham had zero successful crosses in the first half. And that seems to me a little bit preseason still. And like a team that when you look at those pieces, right, that they put on the field, they're not quite clicking in the same way as we saw from Portland. Um, but let's switch over to Portland briefly to talk about their lineup, just because I want to highlight one thing about Portland that I have thought is very cool throughout this whole tournament, which is that they won this whole thing without Emily Menges. And I think that you just have to look at um, what Natalia Quicka has done and what Kelly Hubley has done for this team um, throughout the challenge cup. And just think to yourself, you know, Portland has these stars and the stars do really well, but they have brought in or developed players that can really hold a defense down even when they're missing a, a big piece. Some of the best roster building in this league. Mm-hmm. Maybe the best roster building in this league. It's pro- it's their depth is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to serve them very nicely over the season. It's just it's just hard not to predict that Portland are going to be the toughest team to play by a wide margin in 2021 because they have depth all over the place. It feels like, and every, and maybe they're what you could consider their backup team or their second team might be better than some of the first teams in this league. These are all just cliches, but it's kind of hard to separate. Sure from uh, separate this team from the cliches they're just that good yeah um we, we've, we've talked about this this has been a through line of, of their whole tournament but portland is not a large team they don't have a lot of depth but the depth that they have um is very high quality and has clearly been coached into understanding exactly what their roles are and have been developed with the team for a long time. They have many players. Like you look at someone like Kelly Hubley, she's been with Portland for five years and is only really in 2020 and 2021 gotten serious playing time. That's a lot of development. That's a big commitment of a club to a player and a player to a club with the understanding that 
if you spend enough time in this system, when your number is called, you're going to be ready to go. And that turned out to be true. I think Angela Salem is another one who she's a really kind of undersung hero for that team because that team doesn't have a lot of sixes. So they need her to be really steady in that defensive midfield. And she's been doing that for them. Um, However, let's talk a little bit about Portland's struggles though, because this game didn't break open. They get this first goal in the eighth minute and you're thinking, oh boy, this could get ugly. And then it didn't partially because I think Gotham did a great job of keeping their heads in it and staying very mentally engaged and working their tails off to try to stop Portland from getting another one. And Portland got a little bit snake bit um, in front of goal. Lindsay Horan, Crystal Dunn, you got Sophia Smith. You're thinking to yourself, there's no way that they're just knocking on the door and they don't break through. But if they had lost this game, if the penalty kicks had not gone their way, this would have been such a frustrating game for them. And I'm right. sure it actually still was, right? Right. It, 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 this game is kind of the definition of not taking your chances because, what, they had 26 shots, but only eight were on target. And it was kind of comical the way they just couldn't get these shots on target. Obviously, some of it you can owe to the Gotham defense. And obviously, Didi Heritage did a great job yeah, in Gotham's goal. Yeah. But – it's funny. They had almost everything right, but the finishing, it was pretty funny. And I think at some point that luck is going to change. This was just, it seems very unlucky to me. That's the way I can see it. Cause at some point they're probably going to put these goals. Maybe I'm being optimistic actually, but I have a feeling at some point these very, it's like, cause like I said, they're doing everything else. Right. So at some point these goals are going to go in. But it was kind of funny to watch. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I called it it's like performance art. I was like, this is they're <laughs> doing a demonstration of how you can not score despite doing everything else right. Um, yeah, I they were getting a little bit fancy in front of goal. I think that was part of it. They were trying to they were putting really nice sequences together and they were kind of looking for that final, that final pass. And sometimes you just wanted them to shoot it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it, it seemed like it seemed like the kind of game where a heat check might go in, you know. Um like Sinclair's goal that she did score you know so I think that that was part of it I think that sometimes with Portland they do get a little bit too excited to play really beautiful soccer and sometimes (laughs) it doesn't necessarily lead to the to the goals that the build-up deserves um we're gonna move into the second half a little bit so this this uh it's one nothing one nothing at the half and a lot of people are saying wow Gotham actually really they escaped here they escaped with just one goal down um And you know how that works, right? In a soccer game, it's a great sport. If a team can just hang in there, the other team starts to get a little bit more frustrated. The ideas get a little bit worse. You have one moment and you take it. And Carly Lloyd, who was really, this is like the epitome of her entire career, right? She's a little bit of a void on the field in the first half. But then in the second half, she goes, you know what? I'm going to dunk on Becky Sauerbrunn. <laughs> I'm going to posterize Becky Sauerbrunn and I'm going to get my team back in it. Um, great assist from Amani Dorsey too. want to point that out. Actually Gotham's wing play. I thought was great. I thought that Dorsey had a great game. Um, I thought that Midge purse when she got on the ball had a good game. I thought Portland did a good job in the first half of keeping play away from her. Um, but they finally got one to land and then you're like, Whoa, game on. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, like you said, a wonderful goal. That was for starters, great uh, assist from Amani Dorsey, but it was just wild to watch Carly Lloyd leap over Becky Sauerbrunn like that. And it really, what a great way to change the dynamic of the game. If you're a neutral, obviously I'm sure Portland didn't care for it, (laughs) but you're right. It's just the way that game changed made it so entertaining. And at the end of the day, it ended up being Gotham's only shot on target. Yeah. So, I mean, that says a lot about the game itself, but it really opened up that match in a fun way. And it got, I think, a lot of like the idea was there that maybe Gotham could do it. And they got really, really close right at the end. What was it? Like in stoppage time? It was in right stoppage before, time, it was in yeah. stoppage time. Yeah. When uh, Onumonu had this wonderful shot right in front of goal. Yeah. Just wide. She had a free header. She could, she could have stolen that result for Gotham. She yes. That one was tough because it was all right there in front of her. And she just could not get the contact on it. Um, I think the ball was a little bit lower than she had uh, kind of sized it up and therefore she went for the header and it didn't quite make the contact that she was expecting and it went wide. Um, Yeah. Gotham almost stole this one. They almost completely, totally stole this one. And I, I, again, want to go back to that idea of the cohesive work rate. You know, you saw Caprice Didasco come out of this game, just completely depleted. Right. And they brought Sabrina Flores on, um, it's very cool because this is a similar thing to what we saw in that North Carolina game where we, I was joking with some friends when we were watching, you know, there was that, that fabulous uh, that, Oh, the, the free kick from Lindsay Horan that hit the post and the joke that we were made, we were like, well, if Dee Dee Heritage was wearing a sky blue Jersey, that would have like hit her back and gone in or something. Right. But because she's the Gotham goalkeeper, they they're, they've got just like a little <laughs> bit of karma, a little bit of magic on their side and they're not giving up their mindset, their mental game is great. And so you're excited to see maybe some of the other pieces come together. Um, back to Portland for one second, because this is something that this is not a panic button. This is not ringing the alarms. This is the beginning of a project, but a lot of people when Crystal Dunn went over to Portland, were thinking, wow, the thorns are a gr- already a great team. They add Crystal Dunn they're going to go supernova, right? And they've done really well for themselves, but Crystal Dunn has had a couple quiet games recently, getting used to that number eight role. And do the first question is, if you're in a title game and you're still developing this system, do you commit to the system or do you say, hey, Crystal Dunn, we're going to actually push you towards goal a little bit? Huh, that, that's a really good question. I... I, based on what I feel like I know about Mark Parsons and this idea of putting a lot of time and development into each player and the system, I think you probably have to, I feel like he probably could have rightly taken the gamble and say, focus on the system. We can probably still win this game, even if you're struggling a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. Even before this game starts, you're like, okay, we're probably the favorite. So you focus on the system and we'll make the adjustments if we have to, but we can take this bet. We can 100% take this bet. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And that's what we saw. And I don't think that it was a deciding factor in um, a deciding factor in the game. I, that's not why Portland couldn't score <laughs> was wasn't because of where Crystal Dunn was playing. But this is kind of a new role for her. And so my second question is knowing what Crystal Dunn's skill sets are, um, both as a defending player and an attacking player, do you think that this is the role for her as an eight? Well, if you actually, let me, let me editorialize a little bit. I don't think Crystal Dunn is going to play as the eight for um, Portland forever because Christine Sinclair is not going to be playing professional soccer forever um I think that's what you think I know right that's a that's a challenge right (laughs) but um I think that Crystal Dunn is probably going to be the 10 for Portland in the years to come but for now this is where she fits on the field do you think that this is the best use of her skill set with the understanding that it might be relatively short term is it the best no yeah, it's not. <laughs> She'll she will do well because she's Crystal Dunn and her. I mean, right? She's very famous for being extremely versatile, and she's mm-hmm. got a certain amount of. She's got enough of the right skills, and she's got a good coach and Mark Parsons that will make that uh, that will make that choice as successful as it can be, but. It's pretty wild that after so many years of having Crystal Dunn play professional soccer, we are still waiting for her to like uh, for the system to meet her instead of her beating the system. Right. This is her fourth position, right? Because she was the number nine for Washington. She plays outside back for the United States. She played the 10, a dual 10 in the box midfield for North Carolina. And now she's in a dual eight with Lindsay. Horan. It's it's a curse. Yeah. Crystal Dunn is, she's just like, I'm going to be pretty good at everything. Yeah. And it's kind of a curse for her to, uh, for then her, all of her coaches to be like, well, then I'm going to need you to do something for me. Right. Yeah, it's true. But you know what? She wins trophies doing it. So she's yeah. a, she's a winner. She, uh, she's not a bad up- trade-off. Right. Exactly. You know, that's, it's a team sport. It's a team sport and you play it and you win and, and that, you know, she'll be happy to, to add more trophies to her trophy case. And again, um, she keeps showing off that she's really good at right. doing a number of different things. Exactly. Um, okay. So let's, let's get into the penalties. Let's talk about how this game ends. Um, so Gotham, you know, Portland has many chances. They had, I thought Simone Charlie had sealed the winner when she rounded the keeper. She was offside. Um, Didi Heritich, I, you have to shout her out. She is a player that I saw her have a really tough game against Chicago in the fall series last year. And I was like, I don't know about this. And she has had a wonderful challenge cup to the point where I'm like, she's playing herself into a starting job. I don't know if it's with Gotham, but she's going to be playing in this league. Right. Yeah. I mean, Gotham, I think since Freya Coombe has shown, uh, has, uh, gotten the, this coaching job is it's a team that I think a lot of us thought might be offensively strong, but I think during this challenge cup, what really stood out was the defensive effort. They ended up, I think with three clean sheets during the, mm-hmm. uh, the group stage. Right. And really the biggest takeaway for an individual player is Didi Heritage, who I think yeah. what feels like overnight and it definitely wasn't has become a really, really reliable choice mm-hmm. in yeah. the back of the net because it used to be, it used to be that it was 
a drop off when Kalen Sheridan didn't play. There used to be a very noticeable difference, especially since in the past Sky Blue was a team that kind of used their goalkeeper as break glass in case of emergency. And the emergency came up all the time. Right. Yeah. So she really, I mean, I know AD French ended up getting the uh, MVP award for this match, but I, I know it's hard to give it to the team that lost but I think for me one of the best players on that field the biggest difference maker in a lot of ways was Didi Haricic yeah it's very exciting one of the most fun things I think about the sport and especially women's soccer is you see this at the world cup you see this in in club play it actually you see it with goalkeepers frequently where they're given the stage and they rise to meet it and I think that that was what we saw with Haricic and I thought that was awesome um so the match ends 1-1 Portland has their chances. Gotham has their chances. You think surely someone's going to get a winner. They're unable to do that in regulation. They do not play in overtime because this actually carries over from the challenge cup rules from last year. This just happens to be the only knockout game, which is no overtime straight to penalties. I'm not sure if they did that because of TV constraints or if they were just like, we're not trying to, ruin anybody you know in a challenge cup game <laughs> it's still preseason. um so we go straight to penalties that's a bit of a bummer because you do watch that game and you think god give them 15 more minutes and someone's gonna get a goal here um the this the it was not a game that was like dying out at in the last moments yeah. it was the chances actually were coming kind of fast and furious but nope we go straight to penalties um I hate penalties, but because <laughs> you're a normal person, unlike me, <laughs> but they're thrilling. It was thrilling to watch. I, you know, I was, I'm a pure neutral here, you know, based in Chicago. I, I was just enjoying the game for what it was. And I still had to mute the TV when they did the penalties <laughs> because I could not stand like watching and listening to it. Um, really good penalties for the most part. While taking pens, you had two, two, um, Two shots hit the hit the post, hit the crossbar simultaneously, right? You had Klingenberg for Portland and you had Cujo for Gotham. And then the rest of them are well taken pens. They go into sudden death, which is just even worse. Oh, that's when that's when my my entertainment value goes like down. I just start getting <laughs> yeah. nervous. I'm like, no, it's almost over. One yeah. tiny mistake and it's over. Yeah. And you every time you see a player walk up, you're like, not her. Don't yeah. do it, you know. No. Becky yeah. Sauerbrunn walks up, and you're like, "Oh no, not Becky!" I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Every and- time a center back goes up for a penalty, I'm just like, "Are you sure? Yeah, it's right. going to happen." Exactly. Um, so it does ultimately uh, work out that Nahomi Kawasumi, who had a great game, she's playing very well for Gotham right now. Uh, she takes a penalty uh, against AD French and it is the, it is a savable penalty. Um, no good penalty take is savable. That's my stance. If someone saves it, it was a bad take. It was down the middle and not quite enough pace. However, French's recovery to get her hand back across her body to palm that out of the goal was great. I hope that someone got like a photograph of that moment because that was really, really great. Um, and then Morgan Weaver comes in and, you know, Morgan Weaver, if there's someone who's going to sink a penalty, it's her. And so she comes Truly, in, she yeah. hits that shot. And I thought she was going to, I thought when she came in at the end of the game, I was like, that's your winner right there. But yeah, me um, too. yeah. So she, it's like, it's like bringing the hammer on. It's like, here comes Morgan Weaver. It's time. Um, so yeah, so she sinks the penalty. Portland wins the 2021 challenge cup. Um, is this for Gotham? Do you think? 
better that they did not lose this one in regulation or do you think it's worse because they were so close um i think the players might think it's worse but if you're asking me i think i think they have a lot of positives to take away from the fact that they didn't that after conceding in the eighth minute and facing a truckload of shots Mm -hmm. having center backs that did not have their best game by any stretch of the imagination. I think the fact that they still showed uh, not just some resilience in the first half, but really a lot more in the second half, they have a lot of positives to take away from this Yeah, really. And it, to me, I, I couldn't help but think of it in the context of what, uh, who this team was a couple of years ago. And it's right. been a pretty dramatic transformation, obviously off the field, but it's been a dramatic transformation on it too. This is a team that sure they did not play their best game. This won't be the best performance by any team playing against Portland this year, mm-hmm. but they are competitive. Yes, absolutely. With and anybody. The- Yes, 100%. And now with an expanded playoff picture for 2021, there are going to be six teams. They have to eye a playoff spot. And they, I think, will be competitive for that. Agreed. Um, Yeah, I think that, right. I I completely agree that I think probably in the moment it was worse because they came so close. Um, I will say that going into the match, I thought, you know, Gotham's best shot is a bad game probably and they kind of manifested their best shot without the game itself being bad and that is all you can hope for as someone who just wants the big showcase to be a good game um I have been critical of the challenge cup this this year um there are some things about it that I really struggle with some of the games were pretty bad some of the teams were big works in progress the schedule was hard to keep up with at times you're thinking to yourself, is this worth it? What exactly, how do we tweak this to make it better in the future? But if you look at the finals of 2020 and 2021, yes, Portland won this one. And if you looked at it just results, you're like, oh, of course it's Portland. They win. That's boring. But you have Houston and Chicago in 2020 and Houston gets their first trophy as a club. You have Gotham who are going to build on this. This is an experience that they're going to build into. It's hard to overstate the importance of playing in these big games so that you can eventually win them. Um, And so, yeah, there is a ton of inherent value to this challenge cup process because we are now going to have the privilege of getting to see a regular season after a challenge cup. The tweaking is over, you know, we're, we're finally after two years gonna see a real nwsl regular season and you every single team is going to benefit from this process right absolutely i remember during last year's challenge cup i was actually working on a piece about whether or not players and coaches liked the cup format and the answer was they all resoundingly love play oh love the idea of playing in cups but just to speak on your point about the value of playing for Gotham in a final coaches, at least a few of them told me last year that they loved the idea of giving players a shot to play in yeah. do or die matches. Yeah. That's, that's experience that every last person that play that works on a team finds valuable. And it's, and 
you know, I think for Gotham, it's going to be a transformational experience because these are mo- this team mostly doesn't have that experience. Uh, for Houston last year, it seems still like they're benefiting from that transformational experience because again, they, I mean, it, it, because they didn't have that experience going into it. it. And sometimes these do or die matches create a lot of entertainment, right? Like the reason that probably some of these matches maybe weren't as entertaining as others is because it felt like after two games, you were, you knew who was going to be. Right in contention for that top spot and then right. to go to the final. So for the other three teams in the conference, the games were just sort of, all right, let's use it to practice for the regular season. But the final was inherently entertaining this time. The final was entertaining in 2020 and the semifinals yeah. were actually a little bit of fun too. I remember yeah. the sky blue Chicago game was right. The, maybe the wildest game of the Challenge Cup last year. Well, and they built, and you talk about what Gotham did this year, that game, that Sky Blue game against Chicago in the 2020 Challenge Cup, that's where things start to turn a little bit. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay, they're here to play. Um, yeah, because, yeah. It, it, I mean, we're, we were talking today about how they have a good, there's like a good mental strength that they have now. Yeah. They showed that in, uh, that in that semifinal game against the Red Stars last year too, because I believe they went down and mm-hmm. it looked like they were out, but they weren't. And right. again, they were showing that, I think, that attacking strategy that they really want to be known for. It, the, right, you can really uh, watch that. You can p- pinpoint that transformation from that game, probably, because they actually weren't like the most impressive team in the Challenge Cup in the group stages last year, by any stretch right. of the imagination. Yeah. So I think big positives. I enjoyed the game. I'm glad that that was the game that was on CBS. I thought that, um, and we've said this in the past and I still think it's true. I think in the NWSL, when you put teams in the spotlight, they rise to that occasion. And I think both teams, um, elevated their games and put together a good game. And I thought that that was great. Um, Portland is the team to beat, but we did see in this match, maybe how they could get in their own way sometimes. And then Gotham, lots of really good positives, but still some question marks about how they're managing this roster and are they getting all of the right pieces on the field at the same time? Um, so I, this is, uh, this is a, a wild question uh, that Ooh, okay. you can answer however you want. Uh, but final, so even compared to 2020 and maybe compared to what you're anticipating for the regular season, what what grade do you give the 2021 challenge cup as an event? Huh. Okay. It was, it had a lot, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I will give it, hmm, let's say I'll be nice. I'll give it a B because sure. Some of the games were not worth watching or very forgettable, but there were a lot of, inherently entertaining moments both as teams both in like chaotic matches but also there was some there were some times that individuals really shown so if it carried i i will give it a good grade because there was enough that i will remember from this there were some really i mean and i say this in the nicest way possible stupid matches and i will always be (laughs) thankful for those true yeah i agree i would probably give it a b um, I would say that I feel more positive about it in the context of the final being a really fun game. Agreed. Um, going into it, I was maybe a B, B minus C plus, but, uh, 
Yeah. I'm, it feels I, worse in the middle than it does at the end. I always yes, feel like things yeah, do. For sure. Um, so thank you to the Challenge Cup. We barely knew you. Time to move on to a regular season, which I'm very much looking forward to. We missed um, you. I know, right? It's like it does kind of feel like we're getting real soccer back, and I'm excited about that. Um, so this has been the first half of this week's Equal Boxer podcast. We will be back in a second uh, to actually answer some listener questions. We're going to answer. We're going to a some cues. So we'll be right back. The economy is made up of real people doing real stuff, and it affects everything, which you obviously know since you're a real person doing real stuff. Marketplace is here to help you get smart about everything beyond the what of the day's business and economic news. We dig into the how and the why with the real people driving our economy. From big tech and interest rates to small businesses and what's happening at the Fed, Marketplace breaks it all down so you don't have to. Listen to Marketplace wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we are back with part two of this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. With me is Party Catry. First things first, I do this every week, guys. Go ahead and rate and review the podcast. Give us a five-star rating on your streaming service. Give us a nice review. It helps people find us, uh, and it helps. Uh, it goes a long way in helping us grow, grow the podcast. So go ahead, rate and review. Say nice things. We love to hear nice things. So we have kind of a lot of news to break down before we get into listener questions, we're going to start in England. Um, the FAWSL had their final match weekend this weekend. And so we have a winner and we have unfortunately one team that will be relegated. So Chelsea, Chelsea women, they won the FAWSL this week with a win over. Oh my gosh. I lost. It was oh, Reading. Oh, it was Reading. Yes. They beat Reading uh, five to nothing. Um, Sam Kerr won the golden boot with 21 goals. Uh, I think this is her sixth golden boot win in three different leagues. So Sam Kerr is good at soccer. Um, and unfortunately, Bristol City will be relegated to the championship next year um, with a loss to Brighton and Hove Albion today. Um, Sam Mewis and Rose Lavelle actually both had penalties get saved this weekend at playing for Manchester City. But just a brief, a brief, you know, section on this. The FAWSL is moving into its offseason. This was the last match day weekend. Sam Mewis has been reported. I believe it was actually the equalizer that broke this, right? Dan Dan and John broke that uh, Sam Mewis is coming back to North Carolina for the NWSL regular season. It's unclear what the terms of that deal are. I wouldn't be shocked if it was a summertime loan, kind of like we're seeing with Eugenie Le-Somer, right? The idea that she still is under contract with Manchester city. Cause she did have a two year contract with them, but she's coming back to play in the States uh, for the summer, which makes sense to me in a number of reasons. I'm sure one is that she'd like to play some soccer while she's home. And then also it is a big advantage for the U S to have players be mid season fit going into these international tournaments. So this makes a lot of sense to me, but I don't think this necessarily means that she's totally done in England, but who knows? We'll have to see. Um, We'll also yeah. have to see. Yeah, I don't know, party if you have anything, anything on that. <laughs> no, I think, I think it, it just it. She moved to England to stay match fit. If she wants to come back to the U.S. to stay match fit before the Olympics, it all just it all just sort of makes sense, right? It all aligns right. in the right way, and maybe maybe Lavelle will come back. Maybe I mean she probably will anyway. We'll see about Doll Kemper, but. Right. What they end up, it's a little bit of a different, yeah, it's an interesting thing because you don't usually see a lot of us players have to deal with 
the European schedule off season like this. So we'll see what they end up deciding to do, whether they think that us camps are sufficient or maybe they try to find playing time elsewhere. Right. Um, I think it's an interesting theory on, I mean, cause these are players that technically, or at least in the case of Mewis and Lavelle, obviously Dalton Kemper only showed up in January played basically an entire season's worth of matches or trained for an entire season. Obviously Lavelle's playing time is a topic, (laughs) but you know, I guess maybe Mewis deciding that she wants to play more regularly than just the warm up games that the U.S. will have for uh, the Olympics, I think is a pretty interesting choice, but not one that seems really weird or anything. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And we'll, we'll, we will report whatever news we get over the upcoming months on what these players who are on one plus one deals decide to do. Um, Mewis was on a two-year deal. I believe Dahl Kemper is also on a two-year deal. I think so as well. Um, but Rose Lavelle was on a one plus one, meaning that I think there's an option to be kind of a, to be a free agent coming back at the end of this season. I think Tobin Heath and Kristen Press were also on those one-year deals. So they will either renegotiate with Manchester United. They'll negotiate in the States. They might negotiate with a different European club. We'll just have to see um, because they're also, they are also players that especially someone like Heath, working her way back from a pretty serious injury match time is valuable. So we'll just have to see what they end up doing. Uh, Barcelona also won uh, their domestic league. They are first in the Primera División. I thought it was pretty fitting that you had the two Champions League finalists win their domestic leagues this weekend, and then they will play each other in the UEFA Women's Champions League final on Sunday, May 16th at 3 p.m. Eastern time here in the States. That's going to be a great game. Agreed. Yeah, I'm really excited for that one. That's going to be next weekend is going to be a very, very special weekend for women's sports. We're going to have the WNBA kickoff, not kickoff, tip off. Uh, (laughs) If there's kicking involved, they've probably done something wrong. Uh, (laughs) We have the beginning of the NWSL regular season, and then we have the Champions League final. So I am really excited for a full kind of 48 hours of really high level women's sports. Uh, So turning back to the NWSL, we have some ownership news. Uh, one being that we had some new people buy into the league this week. Chicago announced a second round of of ownership. They have a really kind of large ownership group now. I think someone said it was up to like 36 people on their ownership list. I know, right? (laughs) Uh, So really interesting. We don't know the details of that. We don't know what percentages people are buying into at what capital level they're buying into it. But um good, good stability, good stability for that team that has needed it. Um, we also saw just today that Alex Ovechkin of the Washington Capitals has invested in the Washington spirit. Anytime you have a high profile athlete, make that move. It's exciting. It's good PR. I think that, um, low, like the Washington post spoke to Tori Huster. She talked about it, about how important it is specifically to have men's sports athletes get involved with the league. Um, and I think the, the hook a little bit was that it was like a nice Mother's Day story. So um, I thought yeah. that that it was, there's something about Ovechkin's mother. I don't know. Oh, it's like okay. okay. He was inspired. He was inspired by, I don't know. But um, yeah, so I thought that that was nice. Again, we don't know how significant these things are, but any sort of good press in that in that direction is great. I mean, at the very least, it's more money, and I'm sure t- clubs are not complaining about that. Exactly. And then we have one maybe less exciting piece of news about <laughs> oh, <laughs> or non-news about ownership. Um, 
the story of Sacramento, the Sacramento saga continues in that it's not really Sacramento anymore. We had talked about a couple weeks ago, the Equalizer had reported and, and the Athletic has done some reporting on this as well, that Ron Burkle, who was the head of that Sacramento ownership bid, is trying to move that bid to San Diego. The only news this week is just that the Athletic reported this is the quote that they have a, that Burkle's group appears to have enough support from the league's board of governors to approve a change to its territory rights. So what I understand from this is that Burkle has a bid. That bid was tied to facilities in Sacramento. He has presented information to the board of owners that he feels possibly could get a favorable vote with a bid to move that to San Diego. However, we really still don't have a lot of details about facilities in San Diego. It still seems a little bit up in the air. Don't know if this is a move that the league needs to make. How desperate are they for another team to come in in 2022 that they accept something of a lower standard than, than what they've been asking for? Right. That's my question too. It, I believe I read this in the equalizer report that Ron Burkle thinks he can get a brand new training facility completed by 2022 and a brand new stadium for 2023. I think they'd be partnering with the USL team down there, San Diego loyal, but they don't really seem to have land locked down at the moment. Uh, It really just seems like ideas and less so anything concrete. And I look, Maybe I'm being too pessimistic, but I can't say I'm not concerned about that. Yeah, I think that we, it's interesting to see, we've seen, oh gosh, it's, it's soccer in America is a complicated thing, especially as it ties to facilities and real estate, quite frankly. And you, you do see on the ownership level, how these plans do change sometimes, right? Like Sacramento was going to do an MLS bid. Now that is not happening. Um, or even you look at current things in the NWSL, you know, in North Carolina, right. They're partnered with North Carolina FC, which I believe they are playing this season, but they suspended operations for the men's team last year. They are working on trying to get a new stadium. They've been talking about that for years. Um, the Orlando pride only just, it was announced that Orlando city was being sold to new ownership. And we only found out this week that the pride were included in that. There was a possibility that the pride were in some trouble of being kind of broken out the same way that the Royals were divested from Salt Lake city. So it's always a little bit concerning when we're having these conversations because it feels like, and this goes back probably to that conversation about, um, about Salt Lake city, about what happened with that sale which is that the women's teams are not always at the forefront of these conversations and people are struggling to get the facilities that they need. 100% for me, it's on the facilities. I think that was something that Lisa Baird has spoken about is how, how important it is to have, I mean, obviously for players and coaching staff alone, it's really important to have the stuff to build a successful team on the pitch, but the optics of both this team and the league are pretty, they rely on good stadiums a lot of the time. And right now we're thinking about this Sacramento slash San Diego team joining at the same time as angel city. And 
right now Angel City has a lot of buzz attached to it. And if San Diego, if they can't lock down the space to create those facilities in San Diego at any point, obviously I'm not saying they have to have everything ready to go next year, but if they, if they have a concrete plan, then they'll be fine. The problem is that we don't, I I still don't see the assurances of these facilities. And I think if they cannot promise these facilities in a timely fashion, then I think it's best for the NWSL to have some bad feelings now instead of having a franchise that struggles for years to come in that, in that department, at least, obviously you can't control all the time, whether or not the teams are playing well or not, but you want at least that sort of off the field side to just be fine and stable and just, I mean, you want it to appear like a professional league at all times. Right. Yes. Um, The thing that I do think is true and I think is valid is that there's room probably for even three teams in California, three NWSL teams in California. You have your LA team, maybe a San Diego team, maybe something further north, right? Like Bay Area. Um, I think that that is sound. I think that the actual concept of moving the team from Sacramento to San Diego, I'm not sure that makes a huge difference. It's just a San Diego team now. But um, yeah, I agree. I think that you're setting up problems for the future. Essentially you're going to, if you don't have the foundation that you need, you're going to be either shoring that up so you can just kind of keep crawling forward, or you're going to have to have a sale in the future or have a move in the future. And so I don't know if the NWSL should be willing to make those problems. So I don't know. We'll see how this goes. They're still saying 2022. That seems like a really ridiculous turnaround at this point, but who knows wilder things have happened (laughs) in the NWSL. Um, Okay. So that's sort of all of the news stuff. uh, One final thing is we did have um, more communication from the NWSL, not disciplinary committee this week, but they did announce the findings of their investigation into Um, the racial profiling that Sarah Gordon experienced in Houston at Chicago's first challenge cup match down there. Um, They ultimately said, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but they said that no further, no further censorship or punishment going to be given out and that they will not be commenting on it further. Um, And a great day for transparency. uh, Yeah, right. Exactly. So ultimately the league, when given the opportunity to maybe explain some stuff or talk about their process or talk about the other things that they are doing, they chose not to do that. They chose just to say, um, there wasn't enough here for us to do anything further and we're never going to speak of it again. And I think that it's, you know, we had this conversation last week. We'll probably keep having it. The NWSL is eroding some of its um, relationship with fans every time they do this. And also you have to wonder a little bit if it's eroding the relationship with players too, because there were players involved and there were some Chicago red stars that spoke up this week about this and, and said that they were disappointed. And it's tough because it starts to just really feel like a more hostile work environment than it has to be. Right. Absolutely. This is a league that I think tries to pride itself on having a good relationship with its players, but 
I mean, some of the Chicago Red Stars players were very, I mean, they shared how disappointed they were. And I have to imagine it's more than just the few tweets that we saw. I mean, I cannot imagine what Sarah Gordon is feeling right now. One can hope they explained it to her at least, but I do not get the feeling that was the case. But I look in this, it's a really serious thing for anybody to say in their workplace, I was racially profiled or members of my family or friends were racially profiled. The fact that you can't feel safe in your work environment is something that any employer needs to handle with the utmost importance to make sure that those people do feel safe enough to go back to their workplace. Yeah. And if the NWSL at the very least cannot offer Sarah Gordon that, that that's a failure on the league's part. It just is. It's not even the hardest thing in the world to correct, I feel like. But the fact that they didn't show initiative says a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. The lack of ideas, I think, is part of it, too, where you take the next step. And maybe in the terms of this investigation, they did not have enough evidence to do anything, right? In the context of whatever footage they uh, were, they watched or the people that they talked to, fine. Okay, but take the opportunity, say, okay, so this very serious thing happened. We can't fix it now, but how can we make sure it doesn't happen in the future? Or how can we um, make sure that everyone is comfortable? How can we communicate to our fans that we are doing this? That kind of stuff, you can't just let people take your word for it that you care or that you're doing things you have to show people the concrete steps you have to talk about teams relationship with third-party security you need to talk Mm -hmm. about anti-bias training you need to talk about you know identifying these issues and working towards making them better and they did they just chose not to do any of that and so it's hard to even analyze because we don't even know what has been done behind the scenes. Right. I always say that in cases like these, you know, there are resources out there that forget about just helping the direct player or, or the, the person who experienced this. There are things that you can communicate to the outside world. Right. These people, there are people out there that understand this. There are people out there who maybe specialize in this. Right. It's okay to ask those people to help you. It's okay to have those people working with you. Yep. Like I said, the answers are there. At least like some of the entry-level answers are there for the NWSL. And when they don't communicate those things, again, at the very least to Sarah Gordon, but really to the large group of people that pay attention to this league, that value this league, it is does not like that's where the lack of transparency really you sort of chips away at any trust that yeah players coaches fans can have yeah so yeah my final thought on this is mostly just they are not the first league to feel this way they're not the first entity to feel this way but it seems like they have taken an angle that transparency is weakness and i fundamentally disagree with that and it concerns me and so you just have to understand what situations do not call for control, hyper control. Um, and I think that you can actually work towards making things better by acknowledging harm done, 
it doesn't make you weak. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, I don't know legally what they feel like they can do. I'm sure they're getting advice from lawyers. Um, but yeah, it's, it's turning into kind of a cauldron of emotion that is going to keep bubbling over. It's just not going to go away. So (laughs) with that all said, that's all the news, all the news this week. Um, we're going to answer some listener questions which some of these are, I, these, thank you everybody who commented on the post on the equalizer site. Thank you for everybody who tweeted. Um, these are good. I'm excited to jump into these. So this is some of these, actually, we're going to start with the questions. We're going to bounce around a tiny bit. We're going to start with the questions that maybe pertain to this challenge cup final. We have a couple Gotham questions and a couple Portland questions, which makes sense because they've been on the mind. Um, let's start with, and this is also a piece of news, but this is part of, part of the questions as well. Olivia Moultrie uh, announced this week that she is suing the NWSL for the opportunity to play professionally under the age of 18. Olivia Moultrie is a 15-year-old player who was offered a scholarship to go to North Carolina when she was 13. She forewent that. She went professional. She has accepted uh, endorsement money, so she is no longer an amateur player technically. She has been training with the Thorns for two years now. This is her third year. Um, The NWSL rules state that you cannot sign a contract with a team until you are 18 years of age. This came up when Ellie Carpenter went to go play for Portland. She actually joined the team and did not play her first game with them until I think like days after her 18th birthday. You just have to wait. So there's a lot going on here, right? Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. Thing number one is, is there maybe a, an understanding, a legal basis demand from across the world that a player who is under the age of 18 should be able to play professional sports? There's precedent set there, right? In other women's leagues and um, in men's leagues. The complicated thing about Moultrie being American is this, is that The NWSL has this rule that you have to be 18 to play, but Europe, she can't just go to Europe because they have a rule that Americans have to be 18 to go play. So because she is not a citizen of these European countries, she can't just go out there and and play, play in Europe either. Um, So she is stuck. She is legitimately stuck right now, but (laughs) I think it's an auspicious start to be the kid that sued the league. <laughs> and I think here's, here's my thought on it as terms of the competition as well, which is the league's rules do exist. There is a salary cap, right? You can't just sign anybody for any amount of money. And if you have this 15 year old player, what is her skill set? Who is she better than? And does this need to happen at all? It's, there's just a lot going on. What what are your, your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. A lot going on is really the right call here. I mean, there's an interesting wrinkle here legally with, um, with collective bargaining agreements that, uh, obviously exist in many other professional sports in the United States. Obviously the NWSL and the players association are working on their first one. And I mean, that was kind of the NWSLPA's take on this is just like, we have a CBA to negotiate. Right. Um, it's such a 
fascinating case though. I, I don't know how well it will work out for Olivia Moultrie and her family who filed this lawsuit, but because I mean, I'm not an expert in antitrust law by any stretch of the imagination as someone who has studied no law whatsoever, but, uh, I see, I see her argument for why she's stuck. I mean, it's pretty obvious to see that she's stuck and it's obvious to see that if she was playing maybe any other sport or playing anywhere else that she wouldn't be stuck. But I don't know if she has, I don't know how, interested a court will be in that particular argument right i think when you look at some of the verbiage as well um despite the fact that she has a point there are some indications of some frivolousness here um the lawyer her lawyer made the argument that they weren't aware of the nwsl's rules when she forewent her amateur status and moved to portland there is actually evidence that that's not true at all. There was a piece written in the New York Times about her two years ago that quoted the yeah rule. no that that's um, not it's it, and also even if that is true, that is not the burden on the league. You know, Google it, look at the league. Right, rules. you can't use the fact that you didn't know something as a legal defense for anything. Right, and unless then, it really wasn't clear. Right, which, that's not the case here. Not the case here. You also had, we've seen with Moultrie, we've seen a pretty strategic PR strategy with her ever since she signed to Wasserman. Um, That has included these pieces either in The Athletic or in The New York Times. I believe Portland-centric writing has been done about her as well. You saw tweets of support, right, from a certain number of players, all of which are Wasserman players. You start to wonder, okay, is this we're getting some work here done by the agent. The agent is trying to get this story going, probably leading up into this lawsuit, get some of the popular opinion on their side. It's only kind of working. I think a lot of fans are like, okay, if she's good and this works great, (laughs) if not, there's a lot of other really good players here. Um, And then you do, you look at some of that, the, the complaint itself that was filed in the court and, they say that she's being denied the opportunity to play in the Olympics and the opportunity to develop into a U.S. women's national team player. And she has played for the U-17s and she doesn't have a lot of recent history with them simply because the U-17s haven't really existed because of the pandemic. Um, and so you look at that and you look at the realities of what you're seeing in the U.S. player pool and you're like, I'm sure this kid is great. I'm sure she's really good. But is she better than the other people who are over the age of 18, or I'm even looking at, you know, Portland has a player coming in from Penn state, Sam coffee. And you watch Sam coffee play in the NCAA tournament. And you say, is she better than her? Is she, you know, is it more worth it? Is that a better contract? And we haven't seen the club itself talk a lot about this. It's really been from the agency from Wasserman and from Moultrie's family. I don't know what Mark Parsons thinks. Right. It's also, I feel like it's a really weird strategy to make a lawsuit about the NWSL about the U.S. women's national team. Because 
let's say, right. You said she's played for the under 17 teams, uh, uh, under 17 team. Obviously they haven't played in a while because of the pandemic, like you said, but technically there's actually nothing stopping her from Vlatko and Anofsky inviting her. Teenagers Even to do get called up to that right, camp, right? Yeah. Right. He can be like, you know what? I've heard things. I've seen things. Maybe the media campaign has worked and he's and she's on the mind. And he's like, I'm going to bring her in one day. I just want to see what she can do. And maybe she can uh, hack it against these adults who have been playing professional soccer for a really long time. And there's nothing stopping her from doing that particular thing. You're suing the NWSL. The point to make is that she can't play league soccer. The point to make is that she can't play, like most of the games a soccer player plays are, or in a lot of cases, are with their club teams. And she can't play for a single club team in the world, basically. That's the point you have to make. And you have to say it's right. the NWSL's fault. It's right. really it's really weird to make that uh, to not ma- uh, to make it about the US Women's National Team. I think the NWSL lawyer can probably very easily explain that to a judge and to go on this media campaign that you were talking about. I do I understand why maybe anybody that works for the agency is like any attention is good attention and I don't think it'll make the I don't think it'll make Moultrie's case worse, but I don't think this media campaign will get to any level where a judge would care. Like, I'm not saying this isn't a fascinating case. I'm not saying it isn't a case that isn't worthy of time and attention from the media. I'm just saying I don't like judges are trained to not care about these things. So why would they care? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I'll say one thing, one thing in, in Moultrie's defense here, which I think is true and is not necessarily going to be solved by this particular lawsuit, but is a conversation worth having, which is this, is that the development of women's soccer players in this country goes through the college pipeline, right? And it's tied to ideas of amateurship as controlled by the NCAA it is tied to academics, right? You have to graduate high school before you can go do that stuff. Um, and that is limiting. So I think when the point is, is there and is decent that if you have someone where that pipeline doesn't work for them, there should be an option to do something else. And I think that that's fair. Yeah. And so you look, I I compared it. I think, you know, it just is a, it's a bummer that the equivalent of like a G league for the NWSL is an amateur academic institution. Yes. But that doesn't mean that this particular player (laughs) is going to win this lawsuit. So I think that it's a good conversation to have about that pipeline. Um, And we will just kind of have to see. I know the NWSL keeps saying that they're working on a homegrown rule. I think that they're very concerned about parity when they're developing that. They don't want a team like Portland to be able to sign and stash people. Um, And so I think that's part of their concern as part of their parity rules. I think that that is part of their defense of this. When When they made a statement, they said, we have the rules that we have for a reason. And we think that they are the correct rules to keep the NWSL competitive. And as a private entity, I'm not sure. I, 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 yeah, I'm also not an expert in antitrust. So I don't know what the legal standing is there, but they have, their position is also 
valid in terms of what they think is best for their league. So um, the thing that I think is this is I'm not sure this was Moultrie's best shot. I think it could have been developed a little bit better behind the scenes. I think it's interesting that she doesn't have a ton of public club support for this. Um, But if she wins, I'm not sure that's necessarily the end of the world either. Then you just have players have a different Avenue, right? So it's kind of up in the air for me. I'm not sure I I feel strongly. I think the one thing that might actually end up working well for her is that all of this, if, if the media attention would work, it might help the NWSL Players Association created a, a very hard stance in her favor in negotiating that collective bargaining agreement. If that's right. the what, if maybe this is just an expensive way of getting the NWSL Players Association to have your back in those negotiations. Right. Yeah. And obviously they feel like they have to force the issue. So um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I don't think there's a terrible outcome here either she just has to wait a couple more years or the nwsl gets maybe pushed into some rule changes that i think are in the works anyway yes um okay so one other thing about portland is uh this was a question from mk she said on the last podcast this is referring to something that john halloran said last week um a question about portland at the end of 2019 um john kind of intimated that there was some Culture is maybe the wrong word, but that is the word that AD France used at the end of 2019, that there were some pieces in that Portland locker room that weren't quite working and that ended up manifesting on the field. Um, This is not, I'm not doing any reporting here. This is not, not anything that is not publicly available information. I think when you look at the timeline a little bit of the Portland 2019, and I think this is interesting if you look at maybe the turnaround in 2020 and 2021, um, at the end of their season, they had a number of players um, get kind of benched. So Midge Purse was not starting at the end of that season. Uh, Caitlin Ford was not starting at the end of that season. Haley Rasso. Um, they had a lot of individual pieces that were uh, dangerous. And they were not kind of becoming that core they were not integrating into that core at the end of that season. And I think if you look at specifically the 2019 semifinal loss to Chicago, a couple of things that happened there. One was that um, Australia held a camp. Not They didn't play games, but they held a camp right before the NWSL semifinals. And some Australian players went to that camp in Australia and some stayed to focus on the playoffs. Uh, Steph Catley stayed to focus on the playoffs and so did Sam Kerr. Portland's Australians went they went to the camp so and then they didn't start in that semifinal uh and so and it wasn't necessarily the best what's the best way to put this when you have players like that and they're not starting despite the fact that they have the talent and the ability to be very dangerous for your team you're like "Eh, that might be a coaching decision and then all those players left the club (laughs) so that also played out Ford left Rasso left Purse left and I don't think that the club has anything bad to say about those players, just that in the vision of what Portland was trying to do, they thought that they could do better with different pieces. And then Portland in the 2020 draft, they draft two young forwards to mold a little bit, to become mm-hmm. thorns, lifelong thorns. So, you know, this is not a diss on anybody or saying that there was drama or anything like that, but you just look at the way the team has moved. Some players did not feature very much in that postseason game that they did lose and didn't score. And 
then they made some moves in the off season in 2020 to directly replace those players with younger, more coachable players. Um, yeah. I think it, it, it's interesting to put that in the context of how Mark Parsons has basically spent like the last year and change talking about a team. He keeps talking about this process and this system that we were actually talking about earlier. So, I mean, that's probably, again, one of those big points to make about what this Portland team looks like now, but moldable players really drilling in this very specific system and uh, style of play that they're interested in playing. That's, clearly the number one goal for this Portland team. Yep. And uh, it came full circle a little bit this weekend too, because I remember after that game in 2019, which I was at. So I, that one is very much emblazoned in my brain. Uh, AD French was the player who spoke to the broadcast after that loss. And she said something along the lines of the focus is getting the culture back, getting the thorns mindset back, becoming this cohesive unit again, because you saw in that game, they had Tobin Heath, like trying to play center forward. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't the best combination of people. And so um, I think that that is then that is part of the narrative. And I think that it wasn't talked about a lot at the time because it was a work in progress. It's a little bit easier probably to talk about it now that we've seen the decisions that have been made afterwards. Um, and it's a cool story because the thorns, you could argue that they kind of lost their way a little bit in 2019. And instead of blowing everything up or looking for a different coach, they really trusted Mark Parsons vision and it's playing out for them this year. So that is a cool story. I think. Yeah, totally. Great. So that's Portland. Let's switch over to Gotham question about Gotham from Annie green. Uh, She said that Gotham FC's coach and general manager mentioned that they wanted to go shopping for players with the allocation money they got from the draft. What player or type of player do they need to secure up their roster? This is actually a good opportunity to talk about Allie Long, I think, because she was a, we, we didn't mention that in the previous segment, but they traded for Allie Long and picked up her salary, which I'm sure is significant um, because they needed desperately a player of that caliber in the midfield with McCall Zerboni out. So that's thing. Number one, their midfield is much stronger with, with Allie long in it to do primarily ball winning and um, defensive press to allow Jennifer Cujo a little bit more freedom. Um, I think you will see night and day the uh, midfield they had without that Allie long type during the challenge cup. And then during the regular season. Yes, absolutely. And then especially now that Sarah Waldmo has left. Right, exactly. And McCall Zerboni is struggling with an injury. Yes, all of those things. Right. Yeah. It was they were getting really depleted in the middle of the field. Yeah, they they needed they also have a very particular thing that they want to do in that midfield. And they have two very technical players in uh Kawasumi and Kujo. And you need someone who's gonna be a little bit more physical, a little bit of an enforcer, and win balls and distribute. And I think that Long is gonna be a good player for that. Um, and then wish list. I mean, it's gotta be center backs, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 I think they have the right idea on the, uh, with the, with their fullbacks, but center backs, center back is probably a place they could use at the very least a little bit more depth. Right. I will say that I am still surprised in the deal that sent Sarah Woldmo and Mallory Pugh to Chicago that, that uh, at the time sky blue did not get a defender or a midfielder out of that. True. Same here. 
because Chicago's got a bunch of them. They've got, you know, they've got <laughs> a lot, they've got a lot of defenders that I think would be useful to a team. Um, but the issue with the allocation money too is I don't want to get into this too much, but the NWSL does have discovery right lists. And so it's not just that you can just call up a player and see if they're interested. There are other avenues that you have to go through. And it just depends on what players are out of contract, who's interested in playing in the States, what position they play, what are your needs. It's, I understand why NWSL teams end up sitting on allocation money sometimes because there are a lot of factors that go into getting those signings. Yeah. Building these rosters with, with the lot, with the rules is, it's a lot of work. It's why I commend Portland for the roster that they built. But to be fair, Gotham is actually, I think, building a pretty decent roster themselves. They have depth in a lot of places. Actually, they can probably, if McCall's or Boney can't, uh, if she can't actually end up playing a lot of the season, maybe they might want a couple of, or maybe at least one more option in the midfield. But they're, they've got a good core of players. Yeah, they really do. And I think that in the context of what we were talking about, in the challenge cup final buying the money buying players with allocation money is one thing too but they also have a lot of attacking talent including yes. brianna pinto who is going to be joining the team eventually um maybe you trade maybe you trade an attacker for a defender i think that they have some wiggle room there though i think they're trying not to mess with the the vibe right but i think that if you do target that central defense as being an issue they have some pieces that they could move around to make that happen. Though if you're um, talking about uh, uh, attack, they might get a little help if Carly Lloyd decides to retire. Not not <laughs> not not because uh, not right. for any particular reason, just because like they'll have it, it'll be less tricky picking out the attacking formation that every is, day. Yes, that's very true. It, that is definitely probably up in the air in in the years to come to see who they want to hold on to with a look to the future. Sometimes Carly Lloyd says that she'll retire after the Olympics. Sometimes she says she'll play until she's like 50. Right. You never know with her. <laughs> um, okay. So another question here. I, I actually want to address this because I think that the question is a little bit confused. And I, and I, wanna, I want to clarify something, which was someone was asking about the NWSL disciplinary committee. They said, who is on the NWSL disciplinary committee and or what is the demographic makeup of the committee? Um, these really feel like decisions being made by rich white people, or at least to serve rich white people. So I want to clarify that the disciplinary committee is different than who was doing the investigation for the Sarah Gordon incident. So these are two separate things. The disciplinary committee mostly exists to handle on-field discipline. And so I agree that that got really muddy with that first round of discipline um, when you had people get fined for social media posts. Um, We don't know who is on the disciplinary committee. That is anonymous intentionally. Um, They want that to be an entity that is unswayed, right? Yeah. But as we all know, there's no such thing as a truly unbiased objectivism. It's just not real. These are people. But I think the fact that it is confusing is just another indicator that the league is really struggling with communication right now. Right. Transparency. It's a good idea. It will leave us all less confused from time to time. It's okay to make those distinctions every now and again. Yes. Feels like something simple, but. 
Yeah. I would also guess maybe that the disciplinary committee is not the same people all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a bigger group of people and a few get called on every given week or whatever. Right. Um, I would love to hear less from the disciplinary committee, I think. Yes. I think we're all in agreement on that. Um, Especially on social media posts. That feels a little. Yeah. It's a little bit overbearing. Uh, We had a question about kits. Um, When was it decided that the visiting club and the NWSL were wear all white kits? Is it a marketing opportunity being missed? I don't want to go too deep into this because we could talk about this for a very long time. (laughs) But I think, you know, we're seeing more customization in the NWSL, which is great, but people have limited funds for customization. Those orders that you get that you place to Nike to then sell are way more expensive. There are league mandates for what those look like. You are limited by what Nike has available. I think it makes sense to me that every team has one cool kit and one functional one. Um, sure it's a marketing opportunity, but I think that the bigger issue in terms of kits in the women's game is just distribution more than anything else. Um, larger orders, readiness for large orders, um, timely distribution, that kind of stuff needs to improve before we start worrying about having, you know, the perfect design for, for every shirt, I think. Yeah, totally agree though. At least if you're got, if you've got one interesting kit, then I will be pleased on that front, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So last question. This is kind of a fun one. And I cheated because I kind of <laughs> thought about this beforehand and I should have warned you, Pardeep. Um, yeah, you definitely should have. I know. It's okay. It's okay. I'm actually we'll going to okay. make this a little bit easier. So the question Yay. is, uh, Jeff has mentioned in his wish list for the next phase of the NWSL, an all-star game. Assuming it's East versus West, like Challenge Cup East versus West, who would you have on each team? So I'm going to make this a little bit easier. Um, we're not going to come up with two different teams for each division, but I am going to give at least who I would have on my best 11. So my, my challenge cup, who okay. I thought did really well. And this okay. is maybe a little bit vague. I I'm going to probably give too many names than 11, but this is maybe I'll the, just steal some of yours. It's fine. Yeah. Right. So I'll, <laughs> I'll so I, I came prepared so you can bounce off of me. So, um, my Challenge Cup best 11, I think, is goalkeeper. I think you got to give it to Heritage, though. Franch yeah, same here. Heritage or Franch, I think that they both had really good tournaments. Oh, I'll also say that I do kind of find uh, missing two canes to be disqualifying for the best 11. Yeah, yeah. So this is going to be based on, based on players who played all four games. Um, so Heritage or Franch. I think my back line, I, I straight up do not think you can give this back line to anybody on the East. I think yeah. That, yeah. That, I think, that was the chaos conference. Exactly. I think we're going to do all West. Um, I think you have to give it to Megan Klingenberg. I think she had yes. a very good tournament um, center backs. I'm going to fudge a little bit because um, Quicka played both center back and outside back. I think I would give it to her. I'd put her in a center back next to Klingenberg. Or, you know, I thought Kelly Hubley had a good, had a good tournament, but I thought quick, I had a better one. Um, yeah. I would give the other center back spot to either Katie Naughton or Megan Oyster though. I yes. think, I think that they got a little bit overlooked for their work in Houston being. Yeah. Really, I mean, that was really probably Houston's strong point for yeah. the challenge cup. Those two. Yeah. So the, those, so again, I'm, I'm fudging a little bit, but those are my center back MVPs. Um, left wing. I got to go. <laughs> It is me. I got to go with my girl, Casey Kruger. I think she was another player that um, was asked to do multiple things. She played center back for a game and and then played outside back. Um, 
I think that Chicago's defense had its moments of not so great play, but I think in general, they were very solid. So left, left back, probably Casey Kruger, though, I think you could make an argument there was just too much rotation on the wings, I think, to give, yeah. to have one person. Yeah, I don't think anyone stood out as much just because of that rotation. Right. But like, Kruger's thought, a great shout because she's she's a very reliable she's player. very reliable, right. Like, you always got to stick the – you always have to reward the reliable players. Exactly. And you look at maybe North Carolina's outside backs. Like, Merritt Mathias had one amazing game, but she didn't play. She didn't play all of the games. So, um, yeah. So, that's my defense. I think midfield – um midfield i dabinia yes uh, i was about to say um for sure i think um i think Haran had a good tournament but she didn't play enough to be exactly yes. yeah yeah um she was a force for sure in the games that she played i would uh, morgan Gatra. i think she had a really good tournament she despite the fact it. that chicago struggled yeah yeah i mean um, again that's not where like the primary struggle was at times i think right. for chicago so um I thought Jennifer Cujo had a good tournament. I thought yes. she was asked to do a lot, and I think that she did well. Um, yeah, she handled that task pretty well. Yeah, so I think she'll be happy that she won't have that she might not have to do as much right. though in the so future. So that's my that's my very attacking midfield three. Um, and then all best elevens are uh, uh, more attacking than they attacking should be. Right. Um, and then for forwards, Trinity Rodman for sure. Yes, um, no question. Trinity Rodman. I thought Jessica McDonald had a good tournament agree and a third forward who <laughs> now i'm struggling uh huh. who had i mean i'm trying to think who else anu monu had a good tournament she's pretty versatile as well yeah, amy rodriguez oh amy rodriguez a rod yes thank you <laughs> yes. i was thinking about her like a two wild, minutes ago while jacqueline purdy appears <laughs> She couldn't stand it any longer. This is this is this is why you have producers. That's people. right. Yes, Arod. Arod's your third. Um, so that's my best eleven. I think I as again maybe more like my best fifteen. But um, yeah, those were my those were my players that I really enjoyed. Um, any thoughts? Anybody I missed? Do you think Purdy? No, because those are all players that ended up basically the players I voted for for be, uh, best in the tournament. We covered those. So yeah, yeah, very good. So that was a longer second segment than I thought it was going to be. Thank you everybody for your questions. (laughs) We had a lot of news to get to ended on a big one. Um, The challenge cup has been very fun. I am glad that it's over, but I also enjoyed that it happened. We will have regular season games to discuss next week. In addition to whatever else uh, NWSL has in store for us. God only knows what that will be. I am your host, Claire Watkins. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Pardeep, for joining me. And shout out to producer extraordinaire Jacqueline Purdy for producing the podcast and also giving us an assist on <laughs> one very yeah, much needed game. one. <laughs> All right, very good. Uh, so this has been the Equalizer Podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening.